0: Isn't it a beautiful thing when somebody humbles themselves in order to serve another? When they willingly deny themselves their position and their privilege in order to kindly and graciously serve the needs of another? Isn't that a beautiful thing? Let me give you some examples. How about a teacher with their students? Like a teacher in the inner city trying to help students who are in desperate need, hard situations, not only with their education, but with their lives. Not sure if you know the name Jaime Escalante or not, but that's his story. Math teacher at James Garfield High School in Los Angeles, California, who took it upon himself to help students reach their greatest potential, ended up teaching them AP Calculus by the time they were seniors totally went out of his way to serve them so that they might be successful in life. Or how about a man who starts an orphanage for the poor? That's George Mueller's story. Christian man who started Ashley Downs Orphanage in Bristol, England, 1845, which cared for over 10,000 orphans. Also started 117 schools, which offered Christian education to over 120,000 kids. Sacrificed everything to serve those kids, that they might have a better life. How about a nurse with her patients? Willingly puts herself in harm's way that she might love, serve, and save her patients from physical disease and death. Quintessential example, Florence Nightingale. Cared for the poor and the sick and became an advocate for improving medical conditions because she realized soldiers were dying because of unsanitary conditions. So she fought to reform the hospitals so that queen equipment might be available and accessible and was known as the lady with the lamp because she was up all night caring for the soldiers. Aren't those beautiful stories? People willingly humbling themselves to joyfully serve others fills your heart with a deep desire to be like them, doesn't it? Desire to love others more than you love yourself and to serve them willingly and joyfully and in a way that you could encourage them, be a blessing to them. And what if that wasn't just a one-off situation? So not just an isolated event or person, but instead a whole community, namely the church, So an entire group of people who embrace their identity as faithful followers of Jesus who are so overwhelmed by God's grace to save a wretch like them that they're zealous for the good work of serving. Willingly taking on the role of a servant, choosing to be made low so that others might be lifted up and enabled to flourish. All because they followed the one who came not to be served but to serve and gave his life as a ransom for many. What would that be like? Wouldn't it be something so glorious and so beautiful that it couldn't be ignored, so inspiring that the whole world would take notice? Of course it would. Which is why Jesus commands us to love our neighbor as ourselves and to love one another just as he loved us. Which is why it's so helpful to see Him model that for us. And I can't think of a better place in all of Scripture to see it than John chapter 13. So if you would, go ahead and open your Bibles with me to John chapter 13. I encourage you to have my outline from the bulletin right there in the Bible with you. John 13 is on page 900 if you're using one of the chairs and the Bibles in front of you. As you're turning, John 13, verse 1, let me put our passage in context, because John gives us his outline right off the bat in John chapter 1, verses 11 to 12, when he says, Jesus came to his own, but his own did not receive him. But to those who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So he came to his own, that's the Jews, but they didn't receive him which takes place from John 1, verse 19, all the way to John chapter 12, verse 50. And then there's this transition in the Gospel of John to those who did receive him, who believed in his name. And that takes place in John chapter 13, verse 1. So as we turn there, we shouldn't be surprised to see Jesus revealing himself to his disciples as the promised Messiah and them responding in faith. Believing, trusting, resting, and understanding God's call on their lives to be men and women who are resolved to love one another and are zealous for the good work of serving. So with that, follow along as I read John chapter 13, verses 1 to 30. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. But the spirit will be, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he was. Who he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining a table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, Verse one is the topic sentence for all of John 13 to John 17. Because that entire section is about Jesus knowing his hour had come to depart, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So looking backward, John's saying in all his ministry, Jesus showed this particular revealing and saving, forgiving and confirming love for his own. That's what he's been doing. So a nonstop revelation that he's the Messiah. And then John looks forward, and he says, Jesus loved them to the end, to the end of his life, talking about his death, his burial, and his resurrection. That's the hour Jesus is talking about, the hour of his death on the cross. So A, Jesus loved his disciples to the end, because there's no greater demonstration of love than Jesus is sacrificing his own life so that those who believe in him might be saved. In fact, in two chapters, John 15, verse 13, Jesus will say, Greater love is no one than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. So Jesus will love them to the end by laying down his life to serve their greatest need, the salvation of their souls. Now, Jesus, now, John's not denying that Jesus loved the world. We all know John 3:16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only Son. But there is a special love that Jesus has for his people, like a husband's love for his particular wife. Now, a man can certainly care for a number of women, but there's a unique love, a particular love, a specific love that he has for his wife. And the same is true for Jesus. There's a particular love, a specific love that he has for his bride, the church. Verse 1 says he loved them, his bride, to the end. Doing everything necessary, including sacrificing his own life, dying on the cross for the salvation of their souls. And of course, we get the immediate contrast with that in verse 2 with Judas Iscariot. So be betrayed by Judas Iscariot. Now notice what it says. During supper, when the devil had already put it into Judas's heart to betray him, and yet we're told, verse 4, Jesus rose and washed the disciples' feet. Now, that's the main thing going on in this chapter, right? The washing of the disciples' feet. But have you ever stopped to think about the reality that Jesus actually washed Judas' feet? The feet of the man who is going to betray him. Sell him out for 30 pieces of silver. And yet here's Jesus bowing down, humble and lowly, in the position of a servant to wash the feet of the man who will have him killed. Unbelievable. Here's a question. Could you do that? Could I do that? Just think about a person in your life right now who you're even moderately annoyed with. Even moderately frustrated with. How hard would it be to turn around and show that person who makes your life difficult even an ounce of kindness when you know that they don't deserve it? In fact, what they deserve is your anger. Yet could you not only show them kindness, but serve them in such a way where you put yourself under them because you think more highly of them. Do you hear what I'm saying? Jesus' burden to love and to serve sacrificially is seen most clearly in His willingness to wash even the feet of the man who will turn around and betray him. And I do want you to see that Judas betrayed Jesus. So yes, the devil put the idea into Judas' heart, but he acted out of his own desires. He acted out of his own decisions and his own responsibility, which clearly highlights both God's sovereignty and man's responsibility without any tension. And this isn't some sort of anomaly in the Bible, but the consistent pattern. Like Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, with Joseph and his brothers, that says the brothers meant it for evil to kill Joseph, but God meant it for good. To do what, by the way, in Genesis 50? To save the whole world during a worldwide famine. Or even the book of Job, God allowing the devil to tempt Job, and yet Job responsible for all of his actions. So Jesus allows the devil to tempt Judas, and yet Judas acts out of his own greedy heart. As we know, loving money more than he loved the Messiah. John 13 gives us all the details, including the fact, number two, that Judas's actions are the fulfillment of Scripture. Script, skip forward to verse 18. Jesus says, I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, so there's God's sovereignty, but the scripture will be fulfilled. Then he quotes Psalm 41. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. Then we read verses 21 to 30, and that's exactly what happens. Jesus at the table, troubled in spirit, says, one of you will betray me. And you get the disciples scrambling, looking back and forth at one another, trying to figure it out. Who's the one who's going to betray Jesus? And then the nod, right? Peter nodding at John. Come on, John, ask him. Which, of course, John does. And Jesus responds, takes the morsel, dips it, and gives it to Judas. Remember, Psalm 41. He who ate my bread lifted his heel against me. Don't miss verse 30, after receiving the bread, Judas immediately went out and he betrayed Jesus and it was night. So Judas's decision, Judas's call, his sinful desire acting out of the darkness of his own heart to betray the light of the world, the Lord Jesus. And you have to see all of those details working in combination with one another. Because it's the epitome of God's sovereignty over all things, including the death of his own son and man's responsibility, specific Judas' decision to betray him. Paul says it this way in Acts chapter 2. This Jesus, a man attested to you by God with signs and wonders, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and the foreknowledge of God. That's the sovereignty of God. And yet... You crucified him, and you killed him at the hands of lawless men. That's man's responsibility all for our salvation. So all of that is going on in the background like an eternal unfolding drama for the salvation of people's souls, and Jesus knows it, and we know that Jesus knows it. When he gets up from the table, verse 4, lays aside his garment, ties a towel around his waist, fills the basin with water, and starts washing the disciples' feet. Now let me ask, how do we know that Jesus knows that he's going to die? Well, because that's what we're told. Verses 3, verse 11, and verse 19. So we're given this unbelievable information about Jesus woven throughout the narrative, and yet you might have missed it because it's subtle and it's unassuming. But it's essential to understanding what Jesus is doing. Look at verse 3. Jesus, knowing, knowing what? Knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands And knowing that he came from God and that he was going back to God. What does that mean? It means Jesus knew his hour had come. He knew that God the Father would be glorified in his death, burial, and resurrection. And he knew that he had come from heaven. And he knew that he was going back to heaven to rule and to reign at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Verse 11 tells us, he knew exactly how that was going to happen, for he knew who would betray him. That's why he said to Peter, not all of you are clean. And even more specifically, verse 19, Jesus said, I tell you now before it takes place that when it takes place, you may believe, you may know that I am. Don't you see all this evidence lines up to tell us one thing? that Jesus is God. Now why is that important? Because it helps us understand that he has the highest rank imaginable, that his power and prestige is above anything and everything that we could ever help for or imagine. Too wonderful to comprehend, too marvelous to understand, that he is God and there is no other. And yet this God is humble. And servant hearted, and willingly and joyfully washes his disciples' feet. Now, do you understand the distance he traveled in order to reach this point? I mean, you have to get a hold of this because Jesus not only became a man, but he stooped down to the lowest level of man's position possible and he put himself under these. Men, to be a servant to these men and wash their feet. I mean, do you realize not one of the 12 disciples would have ever dared to wash Jesus' feet, including the one who betrayed him? And he knew Judas would betray him, yet he humbled and washed his feet. But the disciples would never have had that thought in their own minds of washing another man's feet because that was reserved only for the lowest of the low. It was unheard of. It was outrageous. In fact, in this culture, you you wouldn't even sit with one leg over the other leg because that meant that you were showing the bottom of your foot to somebody else. And that was considered disrespectful in and of itself. It was an insult to show the bottom of your foot to the person across from you, much less to wash their feet. In fact, some Jews would insist that their Jewish servants not wash their feet, but reserve that only for their Gentile servants. What's my point? My point is that this is only for the lowest of the low. Which is why Peter's so embarrassed by the situation, refusing to let Jesus wash his feet. You shall never wash my feet, Jesus. Jesus turns it around on Peter, doesn't he? Makes it clear this is a totally different meaning that those who are washed by Jesus are not just physically clean, but are spiritually clean. Look again at verse 8. If I do not wash you, Peter, you have no share with me. In other words, if I don't wash your feet, Peter, then you're in the same place as Judas. Judas is using, Jesus is using the foot washing to point Peter does something far more significant than clean feet. The cleansing work of his death on the cross. That whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. And that's a once and done situation. That when a person believes in Jesus, he's clean before God. He's justified. He's righteous. He's without sin. That's why Jesus says in verse 10, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. Jesus says, Peter, you are clean. It's exactly what John teaches in 1 John 1, 8 and 9. That if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all of our sins unrighteousness. Do you understand that in John 13, Jesus is essentially offering to wash your feet right now? Picture that reality. That He stands before you. Taking off His outer garment. Grabbing the towel. Putting water in the basin. And He's doing it for you. And He's offering to wash your feet. Not physically, but spiritually. He's offering to forgive you of your sins. He's offering to cleanse you from all unrighteousness through his death, his burial, and his resurrection. Why do you need to be cleansed? Because you've sinned against the holy God. And if you deny that, then all you're doing is deceiving yourself. But if you confess that, His death is sufficient to cleanse you from all of your sins. And his resurrection guarantees that you will have eternal life. Matthew 20 says it so clearly that Jesus did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So even here in John 13, he's offering to save you from your sins. Here's the question. Will you let him? Will you let him do that for you? Jesus said, if I do not wash you, then you have no share with me. Do you understand that? That there's salvation in no one else. There's no other name given among men by which we might be saved. You can't scrub enough. You can't work enough. You cannot negotiate enough to make yourself clean before God. Your only option... Is to let the Lord Jesus cleanse you, which he offers to do. And I would encourage you to take him up on that offer that you might be spiritually clean, that you might be saved, that you might be forgiven. For all eternity, repent and believe in the Lord Jesus, his death, his burial, his resurrection, so that you might be spiritually clean for all eternity. First reason Jesus washed the disciples' feet is so we can understand there's a way to be spiritually clean before God. But there's a second reason, isn't there? Verses 12 to 17. So we might, D, have an example to follow. Jesus makes this so clear. Look at verse 13. You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. Therefore, if I, your Lord and your teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Why? Because I've given you an example that you should do Just as I have done, truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor a messenger greater than the one who sent him. The text is crystal clear. He's given us an example to follow. Jesus humbled himself to love and serve his disciples in the most lowly, self-forgetful, others-oriented, sacrificial way imaginable. And his expectation is we'd willingly love and serve one another in whatever lowly, self-forgetful, others-oriented way are made available to us. I mean, that's what an example is, right? Do as I have done for you. And Jesus expects us to be consistent in that reality, essentially resolved and zealous on a daily basis to serve and sacrifice for others because he served and sacrificed for us. you got to be clear on the order of this. Otherwise, you're going to lose your way. What I'm saying is on a daily basis... You need to wake up in the morning. My recommendation would be before you even get out of bed because as soon as you put your foot on the floor, you're heading in the wrong direction. So when you're still in bed, your eyes go open, you should remember the reality that Jesus has washed my feet. That he's loved me. That he's died for me. He's paid the price for me that I can be reconciled to God for all eternity. And out of that reality, that He has served me, I rise, go forth, and I serve others. In that order. And His expectation is that we would do that daily. That we would do that consistently. And yet here's the problem, isn't it? We're not consistent. Are we? We're never consistent. Or let me speak just for myself. Let's assume you're all very consistent. I'm the problem. I'm never consistent. Let me tell you, I feel it most acutely in my parenting. Why in my parenting? Because I often tell my kids stuff that's golden. But I don't do it. I tell them on a regular basis, be patient. I even quote scripture to them. Be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger, for the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. That's good stuff. I should do that. Yet I struggle so often to live it out consistently. All you have to do is ask my kids. They're old enough to articulate it now. In fact, the greatest compliment I get from my kids nowadays is they say this, Dad, you're doing better. <laughs> I will take better. Better moves means I'm moving in the right direction. I will take better. But it's still not as consistent as I would like it to be. We're not consistent, but Jesus is. Praise God. Jesus is. He's consistent. His example is perfect. And by God's grace, he calls us to be zealous, to humble ourselves so that we might willingly and joyfully and in a greater way, more consistently, love and serve one another sacrificially, just like he loved and served us sacrificially, most clearly through his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And he gives us two reasons why we must follow his example as believers. The first is that a servant is not greater than his master. A messenger is not greater than the one who sent him. Now the point is obvious, isn't it? No slave has the, has the right to think that he's exempt from tax joyfully done by his master. So if the master is not above it, then neither is the servant. So if Jesus, who's God, highest position ever, humbled himself to love and serve his people, then no follower of Christ is too high or too mighty to be humbled to love and serve one another. That's the first reason. A servant is not greater than his master. If he had loved and served us like that, then we should love and serve and follow his example. Second reason is verse 17. If you know these things, how blessed are you if you do them? Helpful to know Jesus beats this drum throughout the entire book of John because there's a form of religious piety that utters a hearty amen to the things of God but doesn't do anything about it. In fact, there's an example right before this in John chapter 12. Jesus just raised Lazarus from the dead. John chapter 11. So an unbelievable miracle. And yet the Pharisees refused to believe in him. So they acknowledged that Lazarus was raised from the dead. That's a glorious miracle. And yet they denied Jesus who did it. I believe the miracle, but I'm not going to follow you or believe in you so they've got this facade of righteousness without any heart or any substance and do you know what jesus said to them look at john 12:47 jesus said if anyone hears my word and does not keep them my word will judge him on the last day in other words The one who's truly my disciple will not just talk the talk, but will walk the walk and will follow my example. So Jesus is saying, you'll be blessed if you do the things that I have done. Specifically in this example, being zealous to serve sacrificially, willingly and joyfully, laying down your life regularly, humble and servant-hearted so that you can be a blessing to your brothers and sisters in Christ. And he says for that, you will be blessed blessed. Which means you'll be rewarded for all eternity hearing, well done, my good and faithful servant. And be clear, this is absolutely not a works-based righteousness. Instead, it's being obedient to Jesus's command. And his command is clear. Follow along as I read verses 31 to 35. Number two, called to serve one another. Look at verse 31. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of God, Son of man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, Where I am going, you cannot come. That's going to be the debate that starts in chapter 14. But look at verse 34. Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So Jesus is now glorified and God is glorified. Why? Why? Because Judas left and all the wheels are in motion for Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, which, by the way, will literally happen in hours. Not days, but hours. But let's zoom in on this last command, implications it has for us as a church. Jesus reiterates what he just said in verses 12 to 17, what he just demonstrated, only now he's put it in the form of a command, right? He says a new command I give to you. Here's a question. How is it new? Because certainly there's been commands before to love. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. How is it new? Well, it's new, at least in one way, because there's a new standard. Look again at verse 34. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another. How are we to love one another? Just as I Have loved you, you also ought to love one another. So, as believers, we're called and commanded to love just as Jesus loved us. What's the context? Well, the two most obvious examples are number one, washing the disciples' feet, and number two, Jesus' death on the cross. Both pointing to the exact same reality a radical commitment, a radical passion, and desire to love and to serve one another. Sacrificially. Let me ask. How is that possible? What has to be the core attitude that is in place for this to actually grab a hold of our lives? I've said it before. I'll say it until I die. The core attitude is humility. It's being humble. Philippians 2, Paul says, have this attitude among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, a thing to be held on to, but instead he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. As I said, greatest picture of that reality is right here in John chapter 13, where he willingly washed the disciples' feet, including Judas Iscariot. But he also humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. So the fundamental attitude of a person zealous to serve sacrificially is at their core, is that they're humble. God's opposed to the proud he gives grace to the humble so as we think about application let me start by asking how do you do with humility that's a really hard question to answer isn't it on the scale of you know pride <laughs> to humility Let's call pride zero and let's call humility 10. Where would I rate myself? Like the whole point of rating yourself on humility is already a little dangerous, isn't it? Oh, I'm very humble. (laughs) Maybe I'm not as humble, right? Difficult question to answer. So let's flesh it out. Are you able to humble yourself under the mighty hand of God? Or are you constantly promoting yourself? When you're in conversation, who's doing all the talking? Is it you? Or is it the other person? You know, the most humble people I know are the most enjoyable people to talk to because they're always asking me questions. How are you doing? How's your family doing great? How are you doing? How's Linda? How are the kids? We're doing great. I'd love to see how you're doing. We're doing well. How's things going at the church? You doing well? We're doing great. How are you doing? Doing great. Hey, how are things going? (laughs) Can I ask you a question, please? Humble people are the most enjoyable people to talk to because they're always asking good questions. They're asking you questions. They want to know about you, and they're sincerely interested in in listening to your answers. Is that you? Or are you the person who's doing all the talking? When you're in a conversation, are you constantly interrupting the person? Because the person doesn't talk fast enough? Or clear enough? Or doesn't make sense? Or you have a story that's better than theirs? When people are talking and you're not interrupting, do you ever think you could say it better than they do? You see, your speech is such an obvious indicator of how your heart is doing with regard to pride and humility, which makes total sense because it's out of the overflow of the heart that the mouth speaks. So we must be those who watch our speech, listen to our speech, so that we might know how our heart is really doing. But our thoughts and our actions are just as convicting. For example, when you evaluate your thoughts, are you constantly judging people? Are you prone to think people are idiots? You would never say that, but you think it. And if you're honest, you think it all the time. How they drive, idiot. What they wear, can't believe they're wearing that. What they say, wonder if they know how they're coming across. How they act in public, I would never do that. What's amazing to me is how we can judge people for absolutely everything. And we're always convinced that our way is the right way and the best way. We don't judge people and say, Boy, they do such a great job. That's not our tendency. Our tendency is to think we're better. Or maybe you're consumed with what people think of you. Always worried if people like you or don't like you, agree with you or don't agree with you. Do you realize that's all just pride? It's just another way that you're consumed with yourself. How about your actions? Let me ask it this way. Is there any task in your life that you're just not willing to do? Is there any activity from your perspective that's too lowly for you? Maybe it's around the house. Taking out the trash, doing the dishes or cleaning up after the dog. Or maybe it's something at work. How would they dare ask me to rerun the numbers? I reran I ran the numbers. Or make copies or get coffee or whatever it is at your job. You know, I remember when I first left IBM and went on staff as the youth pastor at Christ Memorial Church in Vermont. One of my duties on my job description, actually, was to run the pews each week. Run the pews means you go back and forth in the pews, and it's your responsibility to pull out all the garbage that kids shove in slots and under chairs. Isn't my job description? Run the pews each week. I didn't like running the pews. In fact, I had a real attitude about it. I remember thinking to myself, I'm a chemical engineer. I was working on leading edge technology. Now you want me to run the pews? Clean the trash, restock the books. And I looked at John 13. Jesus washing the disciples' feet. How could anything be lower than for God in the flesh to wash the disciples' feet? reserved only for the lowest of the low. God, the creator and sustainer of all things, became a man, humbled himself to the level of a servant, and did what none of those whom he served would be willing to do for him, wash their feet. and then was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross for my salvation. Willingly spit on, mocked and scorned, nails pounded into his hands and his feet, crucified, dead, and buried for my sin, for my salvation. How could any action possibly be too lowly for me let me tell you, this passage should make all the difference in the world as to how you think about your speech, your attitude, and your actions. And not just individually, but as a church. What do you think this looks like for a church to be zealous to love and serve one another sacrificially? What would that look like? Two thoughts immediately come to mind. The first is that we're, we would be thrilled to be on the serving schedule. And in any capacity and in any area that is most needed. And that we would realize when we're on the serving schedule that we're laboring for the sake of the gospel. I mean, if you're making coffee, it's so that this body of believers and guests can gather for fellowship after the service. If you're shoveling, it's so that we can get here safely so that we can hear the good news of the gospel. If you're holding a tiny little crying baby who never stops crying, it's so that others were freed up to enjoy the Sunday service without distraction so that the gospel can be preached and have a good effect on their lives. And oh, by the way, we have a lot of babies. (laughs) Two weeks ago, in Kinder Kids, we had 18 kids in the second service, ages 3 to 5. Which didn't mean that all of the kids 3 to 5 came to the second service. So we had other 3 to 5-year-olds in the first service. Last week we had 14 babies in the 8.30 service downstairs. We have lots of crying babies. Praise God. I have no, Please don't misunderstand what I'm saying. Praise God for all of these little people running around. But what a glorious opportunity for every single one of us. I want you to understand it's so practical. It's so relevant. Hey, we call you up. Hey, would you be willing to hold one of those crying little babies? No. I would rather be over here in the older kids' classroom where they can understand my great intellect as I articulate the gospel to them. You might have great intellect and you might be communicating the gospel clearly. Don't miss my point. I'm saying that this is not just a preference. This is a matter of discipleship and humility. I'm happy to watch and hold one of those crying babies. I'm happy to do whatever you would ask me to do for the good of the gospel and the glory of God's name humble, servant-hearted, happy to do whatever is most helpful. This is not a preference issue. This often is a humility issue. Oh, let us be humble. Let us be those who are happy to do whatever is most helpful. Why is it so important that we would be willing to do that. Look again in verse 35. Jesus says, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Can you see how glorious that would be? Humble, servant-hearted, sacrificial people living in community not just in the building, but outside of the building doing whatever they possibly can, loving others, serving others so that God would be glorified. Can you see how beautiful that is? How glorious that is and how it could not possibly be ignored by a watching world. Let me give you a picture to grab a hold of it as we close. Matthew 5.16 Jesus said, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Let your light shine before all mankind in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Let me ask, how much could one light possibly accomplish? One light, what can it do? Jaime Escalante, George Mueller, Florence Nightingale. They were all incredible people, truly amazing. But they were just one light, which means that they could be easily dismissed. But what about an entire congregation? 350 people and growing. People who are humble, servant hearted, others oriented, sacrificial, and zealous for the good work of serving. Can you see how gloriously different that is than the community? How undeniable it would be to a watching world. And what a platform by which we get to declare the good news of the gospel. Because when they say, by, you're so impressive, oh no, not me. The God who changed my life, who came not to be served, but to serve and gave his life as a ransom for me. Don't glorify me. Glorify my Father in heaven. Oh, by God's grace, may we be a people who are humble. Servant-hearted, others-oriented, and sacrificial so that we might love one another and serve one another so that God might be glorified. Allow me to pray to that end. Father, I pray that you would be doing a good work here this morning. Lord, I pray first and foremost for my friends who are here. I pray that they would see the Lord Jesus in all of His glory, willing to wash their feet, willing to cleanse them spiritually through His finished work on the cross. Oh, Lord, be at work that people might run to the Lord Jesus, that they might repent, and believe, be saved, and be cleansed for all eternity. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ that you would be moving mightily. Lord, I pray that you would work in such a way that we would know that pride is constantly jumping up in our lives, and that you are graciously, kindly, Humbly saying to us, down, boy, down. Oh, let us be a humble people. Let us be others-oriented. Let us consider it a joy to serve one another, to love one another, and to love a lost world. Lord, we ask that you would transform us and you would use us, that your name might be glorified. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.